0: Now, with this passage of Scripture being enacted for us, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 24, and we're going to be looking today at verse 13 down through verse 35 to understand better what it is that God wants to say to us. So with that as the dramatic presentation of the passage itself, as you're turning there, let's look to our Lord now in prayer. Our Father, as we come before you, we come before you as people who want to be able to understand the significance
1: of this day, the connection of Christ's death to Christ's resurrection, the
0: reality of the scriptures in terms of how they relate to modern day life, and how the disciples on the road to Emmaus found that their hopeless state was transformed into a a living hope. Father, as we gather together like this on this Resurrection Sunday, we thank you and we praise you that we can now look very carefully at the evidence that, as McDowell would put, demands a verdict, to be able to better understand what it is that the empty tomb says to life, to people today, So, Father, no matter what spiritual state we come in, no matter what the condition of the previous week has been, no matter what challenging family situations, conditions there are, no matter how much loneliness one has within their heart as they enter into this building today, and no matter what we've done in our life that may have offended you, At this point, Father, what we want to do is to allow your word to speak to us. So, Father, again now my prayer is that you will warm our hearts and engage our minds. Because once again we've come here to see Jesus and him only.
1: Praying these things still again now in in Jesus' name. Amen It was in Middlesex Hospital in Connecticut where David
0: and I were paying a a visit to a particular patient. David's a surgeon; he's a young pastor in the church that I had pastored, and as we were standing in the i c u and we were looking at him, I was watching the gaze, the connection. Between the patient and the surgeon, the eyes were transfixed. Around the patient was the immediate family, and they likewise were moving back and forth, looking at me, looking at David, back and forth they went. Until finally, one of the family members had enough courage to look up at David and pose this significant question to him.
1: Is there any hope? Dr. Wickham, who loves Jesus, David, responds, Where there is life, there is hope. As my friend and I leave the ICU,
0: I look at him. He looks at me. I can see the perspiration on his face. He
1: loves his patients. As his pastor, I love David.
0: I look at David, put my hands on his shoulders, and I say, you were actually quoting Cicero, weren't you, the Roman Empire? And he looked at me, and he said, well, yeah. Yeah. I said, David, in the Roman Empire, yes, where there is life, there is hope, was a common slogan. But you know something? In the catacombs in Rome, where those that saw their days numbered, there is a scene of a man with the sign of the resurrection, the arm uplifted. And underneath are these words,
1: where there is resurrection life, there is hope. as we make our way down the hallway.
0: We're looking at two incredibly wearied men now that are making their way out of Jerusalem, and it seems as though what we are dealing with here is shattered hope.
1: Is that your experience? What they thought could be no longer seems to be. But Jesus breaks into this
0: story in a very powerful way, and as the verses begin to unfold before our very eyes, what I want to do with you this morning is to draw out three significant recommendations from these verses that address the whole need for having a living hope found in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Now the first begins in verse 13 down through verse 24, though... Critically speaking, it's found in 19 through 24. But we're going to phrase it like this. Number one, that hope is renewed as we recount the events surrounding Christ's death and his resurrection. And I want you to notice now how these men begin to grapple verbally and express what's taking place within their own personal lives We're now in verse 13, we're told that that same day, two of them were walking to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Did you notice that it's not one, but it's two? Did you notice that there is a a multiple when it comes to the idea of of a witness being provided by God to people and culture and life and society? Did you notice that there was more than one at the tomb that was able to discover that the tomb was empty? Did you notice that there's more than one on the road to Emmaus about to encounter this unexpected visitor? Have you pondered how the cults seemed to deal with the singular, such as a Joseph Smith receiving a vision? Or in Islam, Muhammad receiving a vision? but that when it comes to the matter of receiving truth, God deals in multiples because he allows for the truth to be verified by many different accounts. That's how secure your God is, you know. And so not one, but two on this road, and they're making their way towards Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they're talking with each other about everything that had happened. And right away, you and I might ask the question, what is it they might be talking about? From 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon, the sky had darkened. It's almost as if the entire environment was mourning the death of Jesus. The tears of darkness cascading upon the landscape. As perhaps one disciple turns to the other and says, Can you imagine that? We had put our faith, we put our hope in this one who is dying, and then all of a sudden it seems like everybody is losing
1: hope. Even the ecological sphere itself has darkened. But then all of a sudden, some one might respond. But the veil.
0: The veil tore in two, and it tore in two, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. As if this was not the invention of human hands, but it was the
1: work of God. Can you imagine what they're doing here? They're thinking. They're processing. They're trying to determine
0: the meaning and the significance of the events They were talking with each other about what had happened, you see. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, lo and behold, what you and I notice here is that Jesus Christ appears
1: unrecognized. Incognito. We're told here they were kept
0: from recognizing him. Camp on that phrase. Ask yourself the question why were they kept from recognizing him? And we'll get back to that question in a few seconds. Now, at this point, you would have thought that this is Jesus' dramatic way then of presenting
1: himself. It's me. Your hopes and faith are rooted in me. I'm alive. Why is it that Jesus Christ does not simply respond? It's me. Instead, he asks them a question. What are you discussing together as you walk along? What's he doing? As if he doesn't know. Like a brilliant teacher, professor now, he's drawing out
0: the students. He's allowing for them to begin to engage in the processing of the events to determine the meaning behind the the facts themselves. This is... A vehicle by which you and I, likewise, need to be able to minister in today's society where Jesus seems to be increasingly unrecognized. We need to be able to draw them out and to allow them to hear their own presuppositions, assumptions, articulate their own worldview, and allow them to talk about simultaneously their hopeless situation, whether it be politically or economically or or relationally.
1: Jesus is letting them talk. He's letting them get them get out of their system.
0: Well, Luke the physician now tells us they stood still, their faces downcast. The outwards revealing the inward. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened
1: there in these days? What's interesting is that Jesus neither says yes nor no. Instead he asks, what thing? What's he doing?
0: He wants them to begin to determine and to understand the events and the significance and the bearing upon the resurrection. So now they begin by saying, oh Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Now, Jesus could have interrupted them at this very point and been able to point out, say, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, in their, in their scriptures, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers.
1: But instead, he allows them to continue on. The chief priests and
0: rulers. Our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death,
1: and they crucified him. But notice what they said next. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. David, remember the catacombs? It's not merely where there is life, there is hope. Where there's resurrection life, there's hope. But it's so abbreviated at this
0: point, you get a sense now of the hopelessness that has so encompassed their very souls. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel and then irony upon ironies and what is more it's the third day since all this
1: took place camp on that for a minute remember the story of what happened with waterloo
0: duke of wellington led the english forces against napoleon news of the history making battle came by sailing vessels it was wigwagged by semaphore Overland towards London. Listen to this. Top Winchester Cathedral, the semaphore began to spell out the eagerly awaited for message. When lo and behold, there's this dense fog that begins to settle down just as the words Wellington defeated were finished. Nothing more could be seen, and there was this heartbreaking sense of failure that swept the streets of London. But before long, the fog lifted again, signaling from atop the cathedral these words, and now the completed
1: message of the battle Wellington defeated the enemy. And immediately on the streets
0: of London, we're told, the whole atmosphere was transformed from
1: a sense of hopelessness to utter hopefulness. But the sentence had to be completed. Cleopas, your friend, let God complete the sentence. Now today, if you come here and you have
0: this tremendous sense of hopelessness that seems to have such a grip upon your heart,
1: let God complete the sentence. He's not finished writing your story.
0: Nor was He finished writing what He had to say about Jesus Christ and His story. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But then notice what comes next. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Angels, plural, women, plural, travelers, plural. Multiple witnesses, multiple stories emerging with a common theme. Verifiable evidence.
1: Let God complete the sentence, Cleopas. And then some of our companions went to the tomb. Companions, plural. And you know what? Found it just as the woman had said,
0: but they, but him they did not see.
1: Irony. Neither can these two men. We need to see what God has shown.
0: So now you begin to examine the various aspects of the evidence because the resurrection, as it connects to the death of Jesus Christ, allows us to see the two hinges, death and resurrection, is the door by means we are able to enter into the presence of God through the working of Jesus Christ. So they're pondering the soldier's observation. The soldiers were experienced in death. Their job was to introduce a steady diet of it to the various peoples in the land. There was the centurion's statement. Not only did the soldiers claim he was dead, but the commanding officer was able to say, truly this man was,
1: past tense, the son of God. No doubt regarding death. No swoon theory here. John tells us that one of the soldiers
0: pierced Christ's side with a spear, found that the dark red corpuscles in its serum had separated. Death undeniable. But now as these individuals are thinking and they're processing and they're and they're and they're beginning to put some things together in their minds.
1: They've got two hinges for this door. They might be thinking in this discussion
0: about the seal was consisted of a cord or string positioned around the stone as its widest point fastened at either end by sealed clay. And if anybody tampered with the stone and the seal, the violator would be put to death that stone at the tomb of Jesus. The gods, when they were present, to make absolutely certain the disciples would not come and steal away the body. But what do you do when there's this one-ton stone that has been positioned through an inclined groove into place? Who goes about moving a stone, unbeknownst to the
1: soldiers who would be put to death if they allow for such a thing to occur? And if it were the secularists from Rome, they would simply want to demonstrate they had
0: the body so there would not be a revolt by Jesus' followers against Rome. And if push came to shove, the Jewish followers who were devoted to Jesus Christ and would be claiming a resurrection, if they had the body, they would show it quickly in order to escape their own personal tragedy with death.
1: But neither group, secular nor religious, produces the body. Meanwhile, meanwhile, they didn't see him. There's something missing here in their account. What is it? Not once do they utilize the Scriptures to describe the events.
0: Jesus has allowed them to talk about the events. They are able to come up with the various facts and elements that would have occurred. But they have yet to understand the meaning behind the events because they have failed to apply the Scriptures. It happened to Herman, you know. He was a piano professor at a university. And one night at a university concert where a guest musician was to come and perform, the musician became ill in the midst of the performance, had to leave. And Herman got up on the platform, sat down at the piano, and continued on where the guest had left off without missing a beat. Afterward, his students rallied around him, and they were amazed and wondered, how, how did you learn such a piece and be able to spontaneously carry on what was left off? And he said, I was a POW in World War II. There was this blank board in my camp. And every day I would take this particular piece and begin to, within my own mind, hear the music, hear the sounds, and begin to move up and down that board, beginning to position my fingers as to where that particular note could be found until I had it all mastered and it took me five years. And then he smiled as he leaned forward and looked at them and he said, it was my means
1: of keeping hope alive. Question, are you trying to keep hope alive? Or have you placed your trust in the living hope? There's a difference, you know. As these disciples would quickly find out, And so here we have it now,
0: and they're struggling emotionally, but they've got these various pieces to this puzzle, but they have not yet quite fit it together. They've got the events, but they have not applied the scriptures. Jesus breaks in, as he tends to do with our lives, doesn't he? When you least expect it. Sometimes incognito, you know. And offers us a powerful second Recommendation in those times of hopelessness. The number two hope is renewed as we review the scriptures concerning Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus has not yet said, it's me. What he's about to do is to transport them into the scriptures so that they will realize it is he. And likewise, what we have to do is to continuously apply the Scriptures to the Savior and the Scriptural Savior to life. And so now here is Jesus, and he says, How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ, he doesn't say did not I, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter His glory, in other words, suffering had to precede glory. It's spelled out. And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, expounded to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We're talking the 39 books of the Old Testament. She called, as you might remember, as I finished up one of my radio broadcasts in Pennsylvania. She wanted to know,
1: Gary, do you pastor a New Testament church? My response was, do you realize the New Testament church had an Old Testament scripture?
0: I want you to look at the back side of the sheet that's in your folder because there on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, verse 13 through verse 35, we are offering you this morning 20, as a sampler, 20 strategic promises that build upon one another over the course of time leading toward Jesus Christ. That Jesus, now, would have been able to utilize where, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Do you remember Genesis 3.15? He might begin. The seedbed of promise. There you find the seed of woman. He will crush the serpent's head. From this woman, you move to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, and you realize he'll come from the line of Abraham. But which son of Abraham? You move to the next generation of Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. It'll be of the line of Isaac not Ishmael. But then you move to the line of Jacob, not the line of Esau. Now you see the collision course of what's happening in the Middle East even today. Then you move to the line of Judah where the scepter is to be found. You move to the line of Jesse, eight centuries prior to Jesus, you, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 16. And then, if you can't top that, the next generation, the house of David, where David is promised an eternal kingdom as you ponder the significance of King of the Jews over Christ's head. And three days later, the king has been raised, and it's an eternal kingdom. As the genealogies point out, that Jesus is the son of David. Psalm 69 tells us he will be betrayed. And when you couple Psalm 16 with Psalm 22, you realize here poetically is both the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ articulated for you and me in the Old Testament. You move to the 8th century in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, inform us that you should be looking for one who's of the city of Bethlehem. And while you're looking, Isaiah 7.14, same century, 8 centuries BC, of a virgin. You get to Isaiah chapter 52, beginning with verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12, and you realize you should be looking for a suffering servant, one who will die before being raised from the dead. My word, even in Zechariah chapter 9, he's promised is entering into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, on a colt the foe of a donkey, and that his side would be pierced, according to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, in the 5th century B.C. Do you see how chronologically you have moved closer and closer and closer to Jesus Christ? As people are trying to ponder the significance of what does all this mean? Where does all this lead? And do I have enough evidence that truly demands a verdict? Ruth Hessinger, the Messiah doesn't connote that same entity, deity, or event that will suddenly arrive and change the circumstances in our lives. That's simply a notion of childhood wish fulfillment, she says. Oh, by the way,
1: she is CEO of Jewish World Service. As Jesus breaks in, and utilizes the seedbed of promise
0: to speak of the reality of resurrection. As the late E.B. Whitewatch, his wife Catherine planting, planting bulbs in her garden in the last autumn of her life, he wrote these words. There was something touching about her appearance. The small hutched-over figure her studied absorption in the implausible notion that there would yet be another spring, oblivious to the ending of her own days which she knew perfectly well were near at hand, yet sitting there with her detailed chart
1: under those dark skies in a dying October, calmly plotting the resurrection. Generation by generation and book by book, 1,500 years,
0: 40 plus authors, three different languages, three different continents. This is not a book. This is a library. And God has progressively moved forward so that you don't have a singular recipient of a vision, but multiple authors with multiple Opportunities in their various contexts to be able to communicate the same common theme. He must
1: die and three days later be raised from the dead.
0: In verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if they, he was going to go further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went there to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, fellowship. Broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And just like that, he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? Well, He talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us. And what he has done is this. They lacked a framework to be able to take their experiences and the events and make sense of them. And what Jesus has just done is opened up the scriptures and made sense of what has occurred and added meaning to the death and the empty tomb matters. Here then, now is your third biblical recommendation if you grapple with hopelessness. That thirdly, hope is renewed as we recognize the truth regarding Christ's death and resurrection.
1: They got up, returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those
0: with him assembled together. Notice now the transformation of this experience. It's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. There's a collision course of witnessing occurring where the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them as as he broke bread. Have you ever seen someone so transformed so quickly from a sense of hopelessness to a matter of hopefulness? Those that need to ponder this whole issue need to think about such things. The disciples of Jesus of Nazareth were changed because something happened that just absolutely transformed them. They claimed that they had seen Jesus, these timid individuals. The disciples were willing eventually to die for their claim that they had seen Jesus after his death, these timid individuals prior to. The disciples were not the only ones to see Jesus after his death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you and I are told that more than 500 people also saw him and there was not one to refute this. The religious and the governmental institutions had a vested interest in stopping this rapid spread of Christianity, but they couldn't do it because not one of them was able to
1: produce the body. And the witnesses were credible, or else their testimonies would not have held up, you know,
0: as they're looking at one another. They're pausing, they're thinking, they're processing. Margaret Sangster writes of the time in which her her father, the great pastor W.E. Sangster, began to notice something in in his body, an uneasiness in his throat, a dragging of his leg. They were still learning about this, this malady. When he went to the doctor in the 1950s, he found he had an incurable disease that caused progressive muscular atrophy, she writes. His muscles would gradually waste away. His voice would fail. His throat would soon become unable to swallow. He could no longer articulate the gospel message orally. I don't mind in the struggle being no longer a general, he said, but... Give me just a regiment to be able to minister in. Later he would write, I'm only a kindergartner in, in the whole school of suffering. Gradually, she writes, his legs became useless. His voice went completely, but he could still hold a pen, shakily, and so on. On Easter morning, just a few weeks before he died, he wrote a letter to his daughter, and in it he said, It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to
1: have a voice and not want to shout. They're gazing at one another, a transformation has occurred. And there's a critical statement found in verse 34 that seizes the moment. It is true. The Lord has risen. And the statements must remain connected.
0: As a pastor and his friend, a doctor, walk down that corridor
1: together. Where there's life, there is hope, yes. But with the sign of the resurrection, where there is resurrection life, there is hope. For which we praise you, Father. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done.
0: I pray that none of us will be prone to want to simply stop in mid-sentence and fail to allow you to
1: complete what you have intended to write. We praise you and thank you for what you've done. For the
0: resurrection is God the Father saying amen to Jesus Christ's statement. It is finished